Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Automatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Peter Doggett for the first of two episodes discussing his book, Electric Shock, recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone. In this episode, Peter explains how he came to take on such an ambitious project, why he started with the advent of recorded music rather than the advent of sheet music, the first format wars between Thomas Edison's phonograph and Emil Berliner's gramophone, the first recorded music superstars, and one unfortunate early hitmaker who found himself having to do a new recording every time a copy of his hit record was made. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined for the first time by author Peter Doggett, a longtime favorite of mine. Rock and roll uh, fans will know his work. The first one I fell in love with was actually uh, You Never Give Me Your Money, which is the battle for the soul of the Beatles, a book about the post-Beatles empire. But today we're here to talk about his most recent book, Electric Shock, From the Gramophone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music. This book uh, has a fascinating introduction. I mean, it's a, it's a departure for you as somebody who's basically written about artists like David Bowie and John Lennon that you obviously hold very dear to your heart. But in the introduction of the book, you kind of tell the story of how uh, you realized basically your personal apotheosis with Bob Dylan's Royal Albert Hall bootleg, which you acquired... It was illegal when you acquired it in 1973, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I, I still can't remember whether it was 72, 73, or 74. But in the back pages of the New Musical Express, they used to have adverts that made it pretty obvious. They, they didn't say bootlegs, but they made it pretty obvious that if you, if you wrote to these people, they could get you unusual recordings. Um, and I was a huge Dylan fan. I'm trying to think I was 15, maybe 15 or 16. And I sent some money off, and um, after several weeks, I got a copy of a, an album in a, in a plain orange cover, and inside was what I thought was, 
Bob Dylan and the band at the Royal Albert Hall in London, which, of course, as we all know now, was actually recorded in Manchester. But as far as I was concerned, this was the most exciting music I'd ever heard. And I love your quote. You have a quote in here that said, um, by purchasing Royal Albert Hall against the wishes of his artist and his record company, I was buying my way into a secret society, insider trading, if you like, into the mythology of rock and roll. Elaborate on that, because that's just, that's awesome. And, and, and it's the way it was, because there was so little information available to teenage rock fans in the early 70s. I mean, the, the, the um, music press here in London was, was excellent in terms of covering what was happening now but you you couldn't go online you couldn't go to encyclopedias to find out anything beyond what was happening at that moment you had to make your own voyages of discovery and so um i, I didn't realize at the time but there must have been thousands of people all across the country who were buying the same album and making the same discovery but we had no way of connecting and no way of sharing our knowledge so it was very much an individual voyage and then so you you Elaborate how within 30 years, this whole thing has sort of flipped on you. You you return to the scene of the crime, as it were, and there's a quote. You're hearing them playing Dylan's what had once been a bootleg, the, the formerly known Albert Hall concert. They're playing it at the grocery store as Muzak. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I was I had through a strange and mysterious set of circumstances, ended up living in the same town where I'd been really miserable as a teenager. Um, and I was walking through the shopping center one day and I was used to hearing music at a level where you could just hear it. And occasionally I'd go, oh, I think that's the birds. But usually you'd ignore it. On this occasion, it was Bob Dylan and my ears pricked up. And I immediately thought, okay, like a rolling stone. And then I listened to it a bit closer and thought, this is the bootleg version. And I realized that, yeah, first of all, not only had my bootleg recording come out as an official recording, but um, which was a huge translation in itself, that this thing that was, um, what's the word, contraband almost in the 70s had become available to everybody in the 90s or the 2000s. Um, but the, in the 21st century, it was now being used as Muzak. It was just designed to, to guide us gently into the next store and make us spend money. Yeah, and, and you've got a great quote about this, about how this is music that you had once chosen to represent your identity by an artist at the end of his own fraying rope, an artist at war with his psyche and his society. And now it had been rendered in perfect sound quality so it could serve as a background for the sale of burger and, burgers and jeans. And then here's the key line. The music was the same, but its status had changed as radically as the now middle-aged man who was struggling to comprehend what it might all signify. And that was you, and that process of struggle results in this book. That's true, middle-aged. Unfortunately, that is me. Yes. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, after that, I started noticing the same thing happening in other circumstances. I say in the introduction... I was in the gas station and, and suddenly there's a record from 1965 that I remember from as a small kid, which is called The Game of Love. It was a really big hit in England. Well, right, and Montana, I, yeah, and the Montana. Yeah, okay. And I think it was a hit in the States as well. It was, uh, number two. And um, I'm immediately singing along in my head. And then I looked around me and thought, this is weird. This record is at least 50 years old. 
and or no, perhaps it wasn't quite 50, but almost 50 years old at that point. And I was surrounded in the gas station by people much younger than me who had would have had no memory of it. And yet, I'm sure if you'd asked them, probably half the people in the gas station would have said, sure, I know this record. And I say in the introduction that the year after it came out, most people have forgotten about it. But here we were almost 50 years later, and it's become part of everybody's shared soundtrack that in in a way there is absolutely no way of escaping that heritage of sort of 50s rock and roll, 60s pop and rock, and then the same for the 70s as well. It's a soundtrack for all of us. And here's where I want to sort of pull general generational rank on you, because I think you're sort of, and, and, and these titles are all arbitrary and millennials, but it still has some application, just like talking about Pisces and Leo does. And you say uh, um, that that this nostalgia on the part of younger people signaled a vain quest for a golden age from a generation who had been bottle-fed on the superiority of the 60s to any other era of human history. And I agree with you that's true for my generation of Gen X. I'm not so sure about millennials, and I'm definitely less sure about whatever they're going to call the post-millennial generation. And usually about once an episode, I try to challenge a guest with an original thought of my own. This will be the last one you hear on this episode, but I want to run this past you. (laughs) Okay, well. Go go ahead. If you have a question. I I was going to say, um, we have daughters who are 31 and 28. And so I don't know if that makes them. So you you know the millennials as well, and you bottle yeah, fed them exactly. on, on this music exactly. Now, and 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 I confess, my five year old is a huge Beatles fan as well. But yeah. but here's the thing I want to run past you, and we're going to talk about Irving Berlin at length here in a little bit. But what if it's more of a sort of generational thing where certain musicians hit a sort of generational lottery? Where like if you're Irving Berlin and you start your career in say 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band and you write hits in the teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, all the way through your active years. And then there's a sea change where the next generation has no use for you. And and so the whole generation of entertainers that came along with you is washed aside. You're just lucky enough to have been old enough to be retiring anyway. What if that same pattern is just happening again with Paul McCartney, where Sir Paul comes along at exactly the right moment, starts his career in the late 50s, early 60s, gets to ride through the peak years of the boomers, the Gen Xers, and the millennials. Do you think that, I mean, is Paul McCartney just the next Irving Berlin, or has some circumstance fundamentally changed that might give Sir Paul's music a longer lease on life than even the great Irving Berlin's? Um, I take your point very much, but I think you're right in in what you said latterly, which is that something has changed. Now, the difference for me with Irving Berlin is that when Irving Berlin was gone, he was gone. Um, There was no sense of nostalgia for his music uh, from the people who were coming up through the 60s and 70s. Now, thanks to the way the music industry has changed and culture has changed, if you go to a Paul McCartney show, there are going to be some people there who are old enough to remember the Beatles' first time round, and there are going to be kids and teenagers who are going because they this is one of the Beatles, and they've heard that the Beatles are the greatest band of all time, and it's a chance to see one. So that nostalgia has carried on in a way which I don't think it did for the earlier guys. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, and this is why I only ask one original question per episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, in the continuing the introduction, you describe sort of your career as a rock critic and how you have essentially 
for a lot of that period, viewed your role as helping sort of establish the canon. Like these are the important artists. These, are, this is my aesthetic sense, and you're sort of arguing your corner for here's my aesthetics. Like you're somebody who loves Bob Dylan, but not Tom Waits. You like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but not Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But your experience with this, the way this old music is being recycled in this commercial way you sort of have a crisis of confidence in that approach, if that's a fair characterization. I'm not sure if I call it a crisis of confidence because, as I always say to people, if you're going to write in public about your opinions about any subject, you have to have a degree of arrogance. You have to think that you have something to give to people. And um, to some extent, you have to think you're always right because otherwise, why would you be doing what you're doing? So I don't have crisis of confidence. Um, I, think there are, I think there are two things here. When I, when I was writing mostly for a magazine called Record Collector in England in the 80s and 90s, um, I ended up reviewing a lot of reissues of music that I had no interest in. And rather than just trashing everything, I thought, well, there are people who care about this music. And so I always tried as best I could to at least put the reissue in context. Maybe it would be obvious from the review that I didn't particularly like. Let me think, a band like Kansas, for example, I remember writing about them. Didn't like them, wouldn't choose to listen to them, but I was able to write about them without just saying, you know what, this is trash. And, I, and if you listen to this, you're an idiot, which is what an awful lot of rock criticism comes down to. So I tried to be broad-minded. Um, but at the same time, I had lots of blind spots. Now, when I, when I came to write a book about the whole history of popular music, um, I had a hell of a lot more blind spots than I had areas that I was an expert in. Um, and I didn't want to write Peter Doggett's version of rock history, um, although necessarily anybody who writes a book, it is their version. But I didn't want my biases to shine through on every page. So I tried to strip my brain clear of everything I thought I already knew and everything I felt, and almost go back to basics and pretend I didn't know anything, and then do the research from there. And if I can catch you in a Freudian slip, you even describe this as a history of rock music, which it is not. It's a history <laughs> exactly. of recorded music. Yeah. Um, oh, please don't get me started on the difference between rock and pop. It's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a history of recorded music, and beyond that, it's the history of popular music. And I make this point in the introduction, um, there was no, I didn't think there was any point in writing a book about music that has never been very popular, but which rock critics love, because there's a whole bookstore full of that stuff. I wanted to write a book about the history of the music that people, the majority of people were listening to in Western culture from the invention of recorded sound. Now, this might not be the stuff that was hippest um, or that has lasted best, but I think it tells you something really important about um, any society if you reflect back um, the artistic choices that they make for themselves at that time. And you and you have a very clever term that you used in the book for the music that you were describing, um, which is the music basically rock critics love, which you say, much as I admire the cunning of New York rock critic Robert Christgau in identifying the term, quote, semi-popular music to describe the music he loves. The taste of a mass audience tell us something about society preferences of an elite may not. But I want to jump back to one other point before we get that far in. 
that you talk about what a unique moment in time this is, that this is an age in which all sense of a critical consensus and a carefully curated heritage has been demolished almost at a stroke by the catch-all expansiveness of the internet. Anyone with a broadband connection can access almost every recording made since the invention of recorded sound. True, Beyonce's music enjoys a higher profile on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify than her early 20th century equivalent, such as Mamie Smith or Marion Harris. But all that separates us from the music of 1920 is the same click of the mouse or swipe across the tablet, which brings us Beyonce. The choice is entirely ours. It is, although obviously Beyonce gets a huge amount more publicity. And so there are going to be, I don't know, one million people who search for her on Spotify. I'm not even sure if she's on there, actually. Um, and Yeah, she's got her been... own, her and uh, Jay-Z, I think, are attempting to have their own channel. Yeah. Um, Ill-advised, probably, but go ahead. Yeah, so, so there are one million people who are going to be looking for Beyonce because she's famous now and she's popular. For every one person who's going to be looking for Mamie Smith, the blues singer from 1920. But they occupy equal space on Spotify or on YouTube or wherever else you get your streamed music. Um, so for the first time ever in history, everything is available at the same time. I, I guess that's the point I was making. And so um, that, you were that making take... that and, and another point, which you said it also strips that musical history of its context. Streaming right. and download sites offer you the music, but no hint of when or why it was made and who it was made for. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, I, I grew up in an era where you learned lots about um, music and we've been joined by my cat, Freddie, at this point. who's very hungry. Welcome, Freddie. <laughs> um, she may carry on in this vein for some hours to come. Um, <laughs> Feel free to throw her a kibble if it'll quiet her down. Yeah, I, wish I wish it was that easy. Um, <laughs> now, what, remind me what we were talking about. Okay, we were talking about this moment in time where oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, technology oh. lets us construct our own musical context yeah. for every context, right. Um, I've, I've already talked about all, all the reissues I reviewed when I was at Record Collector in the 80s and 90s. And a really important part of those reissues was not just the, the um, album or the CD, it was the explanatory notes. It was the, um, it was all, 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 all that material in the liner notes that explained where this music came from, where it fitted in, um, what preceded it, what came after, afterwards, what it influenced, what its influences were. Now, you can argue, um, quite easily. I think that you don't have to know the context of music in order to enjoy it. Um, but I, I have always felt if you do know the context of music, you get a lot more out of it. Now, if you, if you go onto YouTube or Spotify or any of, any of those um, services, you don't get a history of the artist or the music. You don't know when it comes out. If you look on Spotify, you don't even get the right date for the album coming out. And frequently, you don't even get the right version of the song. The exactly. things are so purely curated by the algorithm, and they're not investing any money in human curators such that for an obsessive lunatic like myself who actually wants to hear the exact 1963 Herman's Herman's recording of a particular song, not their 1970 re-recording of the same song, those services can be completely maddening. And I realize, yes, I'm a very small niche audience, but nonetheless, 
uh, the lack of curation can be really maddening. It, it, yes, and it's exactly the same thing in a way of if you were seeing a classic Hollywood movie, or that's what you wanted to see, and there was also available um, a, a, a TV movie from 1985. Let me let me think of something like Casablanca. There's the original 1940s film. Now, for all I know, there was I've a TV I've got a better movie. example, Peter. The um, original Ealing Studios version of The Lady Killers with Alec Guinness and Peter Sellers versus the only really shitty movie the Coen brothers have ever made with Tom Hanks, their re redo of the lady killers. So you could be getting the 1950s classic or you could be getting the 1990s shit version and you don't have any way of knowing. Yeah. That, that's a really good example. And it's worse with music because um, often the same artist would have recorded the same song, you know, five, 10, 20 different times, particularly if you start including live versions. So trying to find, the original version of, of something like Tutti Frutti or Blue Suede Shoes amidst all of those later versions. It's, it's almost impossible unless you have all the tools that, that uh, enable you to go, oh, okay, Tutti Frutti, well, that was on the specialty label, and I know that Lahore Richard also recorded these songs on specialty, so if all those songs are on the same album, this is probably the original version. Most people haven't got that information at their fingertips, and so... The danger then is that maybe, I, I don't know, some, somebody's mother or grandmother will tell them, you should listen to Tutti Frutti, it's a great record. And then the version they find on Spotify is actually a really lame remake from the 80s. And they're going to think, oh, that was hopeless, that was no good. You know? Yeah, um, or maybe even a karaoke version by somebody who's not even Little Richard, much less an aging Little Richard in a studio with a bunch of synthesizers in the 80s. You have somebody in 2018, perhaps in a sweatshop in Bangladesh cranking out versions of these things uh, with a deliberate intent to, to, to deceive. But I want to get to this, why you chose the parameters you chose for your book, because you chose the invention of recorded music. And some most, in fact, like when I took music in college, most histories of music would start with sheet music and Stephen Foster, but you chose to, choose to start with recorded music rather than, transcribed music. Why did you make that particular choice? Well, it was a choice that, that I worked my way back to. Um, I was aware that the wider and wider my tastes became as, the, as I got older and, and less sort of prejudiced by, by thinking what I should be listening to rather than what I actually wanted to hear. Um, I, I, I knew there was a bigger picture of the history of, recorded mu of, of um, popular music than I had ever seen in print. And I felt arrogantly that I might be the guy to write it. Um, so I knew I wanted to go back beyond rock and roll in the 50s. Um, and so I was looking for a starting point and I went to Frank Sinatra and I was saying, okay, but he's just continuing a tradition. I went to Bing Crosby and then I thought, well, okay, but he's in the jazz tradition. So you have to go back and back. Um, and the, the discovery I made was that really the whole music of the 20th century, at least, was shaped by two things that happened at almost exactly the same moment in the 1890s, which was the invention of recorded sound as a commercial medium, with the first records and, 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 and cartridges for sale as well. Um, and, and, and that coincided with the popularization of, of ragtime, which was the first African-American music form, not just to conquer white America, but actually to conquer the whole Western world. 
Now, I, I was really struck by the fact that those two things coincided um, because with recorded sound, you've got the birth of a whole new industry. With ragtime, you've got the birth of a... Of, um, uh, you've a got basically... Happening. Go ahead. Well, yes, you've got something that recurs throughout the subsequent history of um, popular music, which is a, a predominantly black style which spreads across uh, the entire continent, the entire world. Um, they happened at the same moment. And then on top of that, you've got something much more fundamental, which is that you have a, a philosophical shift in the nature of music. Um, music is no longer something that exists just in the moment. For the first time ever, it can be captured and held for posterity. And I think that's as, as fundamental as the, the invention of writing or you know, any, any of these other huge changes in, in uh, human history. It's, it's a form of time travel. You can go back in time and hear someone who's passed, like Enrico Caruso or Bing Crosby or John Lennon, as if they were here today singing directly to us. You, you can. And also, particularly as recording technology improves, um, you can create something um, that is music that can be preserved for generations, but that it would be almost impossible for the performers to recreate because it's the result of some kind of studio trickery or mass overdubbing, or these days, obviously, auto-tune or whatever else. So it, it becomes a, a, a different thing than live music in the moment. Absolutely. And I think and I think the re one of the reasons I was fascinated by this book and wanted to get you on the show is because in our earlier seasons with Ed Ward about his history of rock and roll, his cultural history of rock and roll, he's constantly emphasizing the role of technology, and the role of these cultural shifts, particularly the mixing, intermixing of different ethnic groups and the role of not just rock and roll, but also jazz, swing, ragtime, et cetera, in breaking down these barriers between white Americans and African Americans. And, and I, I think it's you zero in on the same point, but with a broader picture, looking all the way back into, into the history of recorded music. So it was just a natural for uh, listeners of this show. And there's one last thing from your introduction, which I wanted to get to, because I'm not going to challenge you on this, but I, I, but I have, I want you to think about it. You say at each step of the way, music has represented modernity at odds with convention and tradition, the new world perpetually bullying and hectoring the young. Um, do you think that that's going to continue to be the case, that we're going to continue to see these waves of innovation? Or do you think something fundamental has changed with the end of the 20th century such that we're sort of stuck in a loop of going through the ruins like T.S. Eliot, where kids are going to be so busy confronting the Beatles or Frank Sinatra or Al, Al Jolson or somebody like that or Jay-Z that they won't be able to invent these new waves of aesthetics? Or that the, the kids, rather than, than going back through all those artists, are just not going to be interested in any of them at all because they have um, interest in other directions with, with, I don't know, with social media or with games or whatever. Um, I mean, I always sound like an old conservative when I talk about it. Everybody else at my age, likewise. But it's, I'm sure it's true that music does not occupy the same place in the culture that it occupied when I was a teenager, when it had its own, 
its own very individual counterculture. Uh, music is not a counterculture anymore. It's just part part of our oral landscape. It's just there around us all the time. Um, and I guess if music doesn't represent a counterculture, then maybe this isn't the same impulse for a, a, a new generation to use music as a tool for going against the, the, the mainstream, you know, for overturning the old order, whatever cliche you want to use. And, and, and if I can quote uh, my mentor, Ed Ward, again, this is a situation where he thinks a lot of that comes from music in our day when we were younger being a shared thing if you wanted to listen to music you basically had to turn it on a stereo and at least share it on the pe- with the people in your house or your room um headphones didn't come along until the sony walkman you know in the 80s so even if you wanted to listen to a transistor radio in the 60s everybody on the bus had to at least be aware of what you were grooving to and now almost everyone experiences music as this very isolated thing and so frequently in my household my wife and i and our children will all be sitting here with our own headphones going enjoying our own particular musical trip and that like you say is a complete breakdown and and the cultural meaning of music um which which is only a reflection of, of what's happening in the world i mean you we could talk for the next 12 hours about the role of social media or the role of the mobile phone um, in terms of isolating people, of making of every, everybody is connected to everybody else and everybody is in their own very small <sighs> I hate to use the word well yes, I hate, to, I hate to use the word prison cell, but it's almost like that, where you can imagine in future generations that everybody will just be in a six foot by six foot box and they will be experiencing the world from that box, they'll never leave it yeah, the, the idea of consensus reality is something we're leaving behind. And the last thing I want to get to in the introduction before we move into the actual history proper, and, and regular listeners of the show know how I like to expand our topics, but um, you you have two near apologies to end uh, the, the introduction, and only one of them is, is of interest to me, um, and that is this. Recounting the history of popular music entails the use of language that is and was disrespectful and insulting towards African Americans and sometimes other races too. Racism has always been as entrenched in popular culture as in any other area of life, but omitting or censoring that language would only obscure that racism and presents a misleading account of our collective past. So if you could elaborate on that a little bit, because we are going to be talking about some things, and I'm going to try to use the politically correct terminology, but sometimes there's just no way we can accurately tell the story and be politically correct. So if you could elaborate on your thought thinking on that point. Um, yes, well, I, I... I, I could not write an accurate history of, of popular music and, and not talk about the fact that, for example, black music in the late 19th century w- was, was known in the industry as coon music um, and, and that the N-word comes up regularly all the time as um, a, way, a way of referring to people who you now call black or African-American. Um, if I was to start to censor all the song titles, the quotes from people who were talking about black musicians or black music. If I was to take out all the references that people made to jungle music and all the rest of it, 
um, then you, you would end up with this completely inaccurate picture of what the scene was actually like at the time. Um, so I, I, I certainly didn't want to encourage people to use any of that language, but I thought it was really important to report the fact that that language was being used. And and yeah, and for me, someone who's reading this book to learn about history, especially having, you know, grown up with the mixed blessing of an American public school education, where in my history class in high school, literally was it divided over two years. One year went from the American Revolution, or actually the colonization of Jamestown in 1620, up to the end of the Civil War in 1865. The second year then conveniently picks up at the beginning of World War I in 1914 and goes forward, skipping the entire post-Civil War reconstruction, skipping the labor movement, skipping the progressive era, and skipping the um, reactionary, racist, terrorist war on African Americans that went on throughout the Jim Crow era. And so when I read a book like this, it's very much about learning like something like the Tulsa riots of 1921, when, you know, what was then called the Wall Street of black America was destroyed in three days by a frenzied mob of angry white people and the National Guard. So in your book, you talk about this guy, Harris, um, Charles K. Harris, Charles Harris yeah. yeah, who published a book, How to Write a Popular Song in 1906. And he categorized about 12 categories of songs and you list them out. And I assume that this is, he goes A through K. And I assume this is sort of roughly in terms of popularity. So number A, the most popular song type presumptively, and correct me if I'm wrong, is A, the home or mother song. B is the descriptive or sensational story ballad. C is the popular waltz song. D is the coon song, rough, comic, refined, lover serenade. The fourth most popular category is what we would consider a racist epithet at this point in time. Right. Now, I, I, I have no way of knowing uh, um, 120 years after he wrote that list whether he was actually putting them in order of popularity or, you know, what what reason he had for putting them, putting them in that order. But the fact that he mentioned the Coon song at all just shows the way in, 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 in which black performers were seen within the, the white music community of the 1890s. They were there as um, a, a caricature of themselves, basically. And then that leads you into the, into the whole argument about White, white, white performers blacking up, and then black performers having to black up their own skin in order to look like the the, the white performers who are blacked up, and so on and on. Which is um, another phenomenon I had no idea of until I read read this book, and that led me to this whole discovery of of what I think is one of the first great African American artists, Burt Williams, who did this, who literally came up through this tradition of minstrelsy, had to paint. He's already black, has to paint his face black. And at the time, he's sort of a Richard Pryor counterculture Afro-positive figure. This was mind-blowing to me. What was it like when you discovered this history? Um, well, well, yes, I, I, I already knew at least something So I, I'm, I, um, about this. And, um, it wasn't a surprise to me to discover that African-Americans had to black up in the entertainment business in the same way as, as white performers did, if they, if they were performing those kind of songs. Um, but but it's still shocking when you actually hear 
black performers singing extremely denigrating songs about black life. Uh, or you discover that these songs were actually written by black songwriters because that was the way that they made, made their money in the 1890s and the early 1900s. And there's one song in particular that I just have to talk about that was that fits that category. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the author, but the song is called All Coons Look Alike to Me, which is just as racist as it sounds like it would be. And yet it's an adaptation of a song called All Pimps Look Alike to Me. And so if you had written a song by, sung by a woman in the 1990s called All Pimps Look Alike to Me, and say Lil' Kim had done that song, and it, it would have been viewed as a female empowerment song, rejecting these pimps, you're disposable to me, I don't need you, I chew you up, I spit you out. But in, in 1890, that was completely unacceptable, and yet the straight-up racism of all coons look alike to me is not only just fine, it's a huge popular smash. That's exactly right, and... It's written by a black guy um, using the name Ernest Hogan. Yes, his, Ernest his, Hogan. Yeah, his, his real name was Reuben Crowders. Um, and yeah, if he, if he wanted to get a hit song, he knew he had to make fun of his own race. That, that was the easiest way of keeping his career going. And, that, and to me, the tragedy of somebody like Ernest Hogan is here is a guy who was one of the first American songwriters to put syncopation into a hit song. He's one of the first African-American songwriters to have a million-selling million piece of sheet music. And he's one of the first African-American musical producers to get a show on Broadway. And yet at this point in time, all he is remembered for, um, I mean, other than to music obsessives even more than us, is this one song that at least from our perspective, seems like this dreadful piece of self-hating racism. That's true. And it's at, actually quite a relief to discover that at the time those kind of songs were being written, that the, the, the uh, Negro Music Journal, which, which was a very upscale magazine in the 1890s, um, obviously written by black people about black culture for black people, they, they actually wrote articles saying exactly what you've been saying about these songs, saying how dreadful they are, how they were bringing their race down, and how um, black performers who, who, were, who were singing those songs should be ashamed of themselves. So that, so that feeling was very much there at the time. Yeah, and I wanted to uh, um, quote a little bit from that, because I think you're getting onto something which is sort of an obsession of mine, which is sort of the fractal nature of history and how when you really look at it, it starts to break down and just like the shape of a leaf is mirrored in the shape of, of a tree that the, you know, when you get into the details and the nitty gritty of history, you see these same arguments repeating. And so you have like these, um, W.E.B. Dubois figures versus these uh, Booker Washington figures, you know, that these there's this conservative and progressive wing within the African-American community debating these things, plus the same sort of commercial considerations that go on. But this quote from the Negro Music Journal is just um, too good to pass up. It says the typical Negro would blush to own acquaintance with the vicious trash put forth under Ethiopian titles. 
They maintained that the title of ragtime should be reserved for a class of composition that has since been dubbed classic ragtime. It was in- inevitably infiltrated by white imitators and handled by white publishers, but at, its, but at its finest, this ragtime tradition was intended to provide not just popular entertainment, but an aesthetic experience comparable to the pinnacles of serious European composition. And that's where Scott Joplin enters the picture, who's like one of the first, uh, you know, if you look at the history of American music, I mean, Stephen Foster is probably the first notable worldwide figure to come out of America. But Scott Joplin might be the first American composer to have a place in the Western canon. Yeah, and as I point out in the book, he also managed to have the best-selling American single of, I think it was 1973, with, with one of the tunes from the soundtrack of the film The Sting. Um, so with that, that just that just showed the, the sort of enduring quality, or at least appeal, of his, his music. Um, but yes, the, 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 there's a huge divide um, between two, two different things that, that were called ragtime at the same moment in history. One of which is the Scott Joplin um, piano composition, which was, um, I, I, I explain in the book how the first time I was hearing these, the, these ragtime pieces from the 1890s, the 1900s, the 1910s, they just sounded like an interesting collection of piano themes. And it was only when I sat down and studied them that I realized that they were all written to a very, very um, tight structure. Um, where they would have one theme, they go to an, an alternate theme back to the first, and then introduce a third theme, and then possibly back to the first, but not usually, and then introduce a fourth theme. So you'd have, in effect, four pieces, four songs in the same composition, all compressed within about four minutes. And that, in essence, was ragtime piano. So, so that was ragtime. But as far as the mass of the American public was concerned, ragtime were these coon songs that um, employed awful caricatures of um, African-American people and their lives. And you've got two quotes that you contrast, both from the 1890s, that I thought was just a really telling contrast. First, and and I'm going to mispronounce this guy's name, so bear with me on this, but the great Czech composer, Dvorak, right? Is that... Fair enough way to say his name. It's pretty close. <laughs> All right. Zvorak says, and, and this at the time in 1893, this was a man who was recognized as being, if not at the pinnacle of Western classical music, close to it. And when he came to America, it was a big deal. And he said, the future music of this country, meaning America, must be founded upon what are called the Negro melodies. This must be the real foundation of any serious and original school of composition to be developed in the United States. These melodies are pathetic, tender, passionate, melancholy, solemn, religious, bold, merry, gay, or what you will. But it is music that suits itself to any mood or purpose. What was the reaction of the average sort of bourgeois, middle-class, racist, white American on hearing Presumably, certain of them viewed Dvorak as a musical hero. I mean, was this just greeted with disbelief, or this man doesn't understand our culture? Or was this like a sort of a cultural grenade that went off in people's minds? Um, I, I would have to say neither of those. I, I would imagine that <laughs> Fair it, enough. It, it was said in a 
newspaper interview or in a magazine article which was read by, I don't know, 5,000 people or something and promptly forgotten. So I, I would think beyond, beyond his particular niche milieu, I don't think it would have had any impact at all. Well, you shot me down again. It's sort of like <laughs> the infamous John Lennon interview where he uh, told his Maureen Cleave, you know, we're bigger than Jesus. And and it was in one of the posh Brit papers and nobody cared. And it wasn't until um, Danny Fields, the later manager of the Ramones, puts it in an American tabloid called Datebook on the cover that it results in the yokels of Nashville and Memphis burning their Beatles records. But so, so Dvorak needed a better publicist is what you're saying. (laughs) But you contrast it with a quote from the Baltimore Afro-American, which was a newspaper. And it says, what with coon songs, banjo picking and quote cakewalks, the white people are picking up what the better class of colored people are trying to get away from. Are the white people degenerating in these tastes? This almost sounds like something you would read from like an American conservative cultural critic like Leonard Maltin or George Will uh, in the 1990s. Well, exactly. I mean, there there are so many parallels with what you were saying earlier as well when you were first first raising these issues. And I immediately was thinking about gangster rap, which um, I have to confess, I'm I'm not familiar with the the two guys you just mentioned, but um, I, I can imagine that the impulse would be the same as this newspaper from Baltimore in the 1890s, which is we're, we're trying to establish black America as a civilized, um, respectable, artistic, worthy culture. And you guys are bringing it back down to the worst caricatures by indulging the white man's darkest fantasies about what black people are really like. And that applied to coon songs and it applied to gangster rap as well. Yeah, it's 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 like I said, it's it's just very practical, fractal, and these same arguments just keep getting repeated time and time again. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to bring up a Lord of the Rings reference, but I'll spare everybody that. But I do want to talk about some of the points you bring up about the impact of recorded music, and you start the first chapter, the first formal chapter of the book, with the story of a court case, but, uh, where two songwriters are uh, contesting the authorship of a song. And in 1904, the judge with the great name, Mr. Justice Darling, uh, uh, adjudicates this case between Miss Gracie Graham and Miss Katie Lawrence. And uh, then you'd compare this with a, a case just a few years later where two songs are up for debate. And the difference is, What differentiated this case from all previous legal rulings on the subject of musical copywriting was the evidence offered to the court. Lawyers brought forth phonograph records of both songs to prove the similarity or dissimilarity between them. And so, whereas Judge Darling, Justice Darling, when he's looking at cheap music, could be entirely dismissive and basically laugh them out of court for even claiming that they had any pretense to copyright, once the this judge Lacombe in the second case has to play that for the audience, it's an entirely different legal dynamic. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, I can, except, except that the, the, the second judge refused to listen to the records. <laughs> so um, although the evidence was there, he didn't think it was worthy of consideration because 
I, I guess the same underlying feeling of these are just stupid little songs who ultimately really cares who owns them um, and so you, you 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 it would make a great great a great scene in a movie actually you can imagine all the attorneys jumping up and down and waving these ancient um, re, re, really fragile records at the judge and him just going no I'm not interested I'm off lunchtime <laughs> recess you know and uh, yeah and 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 it makes me think as an embittered Gen Xer who's still angry that what to me are landmark albums of my generation like De La Soul's first album or the Beastie Boys Paul Paul's Boutique or Public Enemies Nation of Millions could no longer be produced today because of legal rulings made by judges who put just as much thought and consideration into the aesthetic value of the music as they did at the turn of the 20th century. That's true, and and you've also also recently with the with the case about I'm trying to think which song it was. Was it Blurred Lines? That yes, it was Blurred Lines, the, where the, the estate Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye yeah. won a plagiarism suit against and and I can't remember the names of the authors of the pop songs, um, but essentially they didn't even have chord changes in common. That it if. It, it was a whole dramatic expansion of what you could claim ownership of in terms of music copyright. And we, we are just beginning to see the implications of that play out through the legal system. Mm, because to me, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting safely in, in another country, so I guess I can say what I like, that ruling seemed absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, if, if you're not, not basing infringements of copyright on... I'm either stealing a melody or stealing the words, if you're just going to use a rhythm and feel, well, then almost every song in musical history is um, up up for copyright uh, grabs now. So, Exactly. And I think that goes back, this is sort of a side point not covered in your book, but, but what we're, we are about to wrap this episode, so I'll allow myself one <laughs> last tangent. But music copyright goes back to roughly the sad story of Stephen Foster dying in penury. And it was viewed that that was a tragedy and that songwriters were owed some lasting compensation for their creation. And so it was allowed to copyright songs based on the things you named. Harmony, which is the chord structure. Melody, which is the melodic sequence of notes. And the lyrics. Rhythm was not copyrightable. And I would argue that if you had a musical legal system that started with African-American musical history or African musical history, that rhythm would definitely be copyrighted and that somebody like James Brown or George Clinton would be naturally compensated anytime, or Bo Diddley, for a classic example of someone associated with one particular beat, would be compensated to some extent every time somebody played it, but would not have the power to prevent people from writing a new song using that beat. Yeah, that's that's true, and, and I, I I was just thinking of a whole different example, which comes up once you get into in, instrumental music, which is when when Led Zeppelin did rock and roll, the drum intro by John Bonham is taken from I think it's Keeper Knocking by Little Richard, one of those Little Richard records. Of course, yes. And 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 he's obviously paying tribute to Little Richard. They all loved. And that. Earl Palmer, the drummer who played on the track. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so. But with the 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 way that the law is going, maybe there's going to be a retrospective claim, not just about 
is Stairway to Heaven based on an instrumental by Spirit from 1968. But is it right for Les Zeppelin to use the same drum intro as Earl Palmer in 1956? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where that, where that sort of line of thinking ends. Yeah, my fear is that, you know, particularly after having done a whole season with Ed Ward and discussed in great detail the value of the synthesis and the cross-pollination of musics from diverse cultures within American culture, between African-American music and American Celtic music and so on and so forth, you wouldn't have ragtime, you would not have jazz, you would not have rock and roll, you would not have hip-hop, you wouldn't have reggae, you wouldn't have any of this stuff without this cross-pollination. And I fear an era of digital control and political correctness that stops any future cross-pollination in its tracks. Yeah, because as I think we, we, we sort of hinted at earlier, you've got two contradictory things going on. You've got, with the internet, with the World Wide Web, you've got um, something that's making everything available to everybody. And then at the same time, you're imposing stricter and stricter rules about well, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this, while at the same time the computers or the phones in front of us are screaming, you can do anything you like. Um, I'm not sure how society is going to deal with those sort of warring impulses. And with that gloomy note, we'll wrap up this episode, and we're so excited to have you back next week where we'll continue uh, with your book. And and I don't know how far we'll get into it, but we'll at least talk more about ragtime, the invention of radio and recorded music, and um, the great Irving Berlin, Al Jolson, and the creation myth of jazz. So thanks so much for being on the show, Peter Doggett, and uh, thanks for coming back next week. Thanks for listening. Next week, author Peter Doggett returns for the second episode featuring his book, Electric Shock, recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Electric Shock, recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone, is available from Random House and can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.